0: Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Before we get to the episode, we care really deeply about supporting you in your meditation practice and feel that providing you with high-quality teachers is one of the best ways to do that. Customers of the 10% Happier app say they stick around specifically for the range of teachers and the deep wisdom these teachers have to impart. For anybody new to the app, we've got a special discount for you. And if you're an existing subscriber, we thank you for your support. So to go claim your discount, visit 10%.com slash August. That's 10% one word all spelled out.com slash August. Hey guys, the virus has exploited so many weaknesses in our culture. But having exploited and in the process exposed these weaknesses, for example, the inequities and reckless individualism in our culture, could the current crisis lead to a fundamental shift for humankind? That's a fascinating question. And it may sound utopian, but our guest today believes it's genuinely possible. Dr. Jonathan Salk is an adult and child psychiatrist at UCLA. He's been thinking about the future of our species for about 40 years, starting when he co-authored a book called A New Reality with his dad, Dr. Jonas Salk. You might have heard of him. He invented the polio vaccine 65 years ago. And so today with, with Dr. Salk or the Dr. Salk Jr., we... We dwell in the past a little bit with some some fascinating memories of the polio vaccine process from his perspective as a, as a little boy. And then we project into the future and in ways that I found to be both hopeful and realistic. So here we go with Dr. Jonathan Salk. Well, Jonathan, nice to meet you.
1: Nice to meet you as well, Dan.
0: You wrote a column recently, and the title was, What Jonas Salk Would Have Said About COVID-19? Uh, there are a lot of really fascinating points in there that I want to drill down on. But generally speaking, what do you think your dad would have said about the current predicament?
1: He would have said that it's really important. You know, obviously, he would say that the, de- the development of a vaccine is really important. He would have understood the necessary kind of interdependence and cooperative work that would go into creating one. But he would understand that the actual effectiveness of the vaccine doesn't just depend on having a vaccine that works, but it's a whole social, political, and economic issue, like a human issue and a human systems issue, getting that distributed, getting people in a place where they can take it. And so that eradicating a disease or defeating a disease or even suppressing it involves things from every level, from the technological to the political or economic. I I think the additional thing I would just say is that he would urge a lot of caution at this moment in time. He knows better than anybody or he knew better than anybody what the pitfalls of something going wrong with a vaccine can be and how important it is to get it as right as possible before you you go into distributing it. And I think if it's distributed too quickly and there are side effects or there are adverse effects, I think we've kind of only got one shot of getting people to take a vaccine. Mm
0: -hmm. I want to go back to what you said about interdependence. Mm -hmm. It's become a trope: we're all in it together, but in so many ways we're not. Right? Uh, We can't agree on masks. Mm -hmm. The the massively disproportionate impact based on economics, pigmentation, so many other aspects of our humanity. Mm -hmm. Um, And while the era in which your dad was developing the polio vaccine was by no means perfect. (laughs) there were a lot of problems in our society back then we were i think a little bit more public spirited uh and and a little bit less mistrustful of one another i i think that's maybe safe to say which which made it a more fertile territory for doing the testing that needed to be done and then getting it out to people
1: i think that's absolutely right dan i think that that period in the late 40s and 1950s was really a different time, certainly in terms of the public trust in science and public trust in technology and, and even in government. And there was, I think there was a more particular around the polio vaccine, there was a total pull together spirit. The the whole concept of the March of Dimes, which funded much of the vaccine work, was based on what's the amount that a, that anybody could give. And so there was a, a whole groundswell of, we now call it grassroots effort, to do this. So everybody was part of it. So it, it was, looking back, it was kind of a unique time where a lot of a lot of things were able to be gotten done in a, in a cooperative way.
0: How worried do you think your dad would be? I mean, you, you talked about it a little bit, but given the current climate and the fact that we've got You know, mistrust in one another, mistrust in government, a pretty vocal anti-vaxxer community, never mind the work of developing the vaccine, which appears as a non-scientist and an outsider to be Mm -hmm. doing reasonably well, from what I can see, got some stage three trials going, et cetera, et cetera. The successful promulgation of the vaccine into the society, how worried do you think your dad would be given the current landscape? I can't say that he'd be worried, but he would really identify it as
1: a, as a challenge and as something to, to be addressed. Um, and then this gets into a whole other aspect of my father's thinking, because in the last part of his life, basically, he was very interested in certain problems of humanity and with human problems so and what, what went on in the human mind, what went on with people's behavior, what went on on kind of a, a broader existential level. So he would really see it in that context of this is a human problem that needs to be solved,
0: but he would see it definitely as a problem. You, there was a one line from the article that really struck me. And I think, I think it's going to pick up on what you were just driving out there. Here's the quote. Uh, he would have recognized, he being your father, he would have recognized the COVID-19 pandemic not only as something to be feared and fought, but also as a moment to embrace wisdom And then I'm going to do a little bit of an ellipses here. And and, uh, a few sentences later, you write, paradoxically, self-interest in this case is best served by generosity. Mm -hmm. So can you please hold forth (laughs) on all of that? (laughs) I'll do my best. Okay. Um,
1: Let's step back for a second and put it in a broader context. My father really saw us at a transition point in history and evolution from a A rather extraordinary time of unfettered growth and acceleration, both in population and in growth, changing over to a time where we're encountering planetary limits and things are slowing. And he really saw that that was a inflection point, a very important point of a change from a certain set of values to another set of values. And we can come back to that if that's of interest. I think the issue of wisdom was very high in his mind. And very, very important, he, he actually wrote a book in the, in the early 70s called Survival of the Wisest. And he felt like the evolutionary pressures were now going to select for those who were wise rather than those who are biologically fit in different ways. So wisdom was a, a big subject for him. And the, the phrase about generosity serving self-interest is that in this change, in the new conditions that we're entering, which um, involve approaching our planetary limits and a need to be more, realize we we're interdependent, that we're one world and that cooperation will be better than competition. That in that change that happens, not just because it's morally right or it's better or it's spiritually right. It happens because it's actually practical that us being more, generous, us being more understanding of, of looking at win-win solutions that what's good for you is good for me rather than the, than the, what's good for me is bad for you and the opposite. That under those conditions, paradoxically, that generosity of being good and being giving and being able to get along and work cooperatively, that serves my self-interest, that serves our self-interest, as well as the the, the benefit of the other person.
0: So it's a kind of enlightened self-interest.
1: Yeah, it is. But it, it, in, in a sense, I think it will become increasingly so that it's not uh, – it, you don't even need to be that enlightened. It will be clear and obvious that we're not going to get by without doing that.
0: So if it's so clear and obvious, is it wisdom anymore? <laughs> um, I would say yes.
1: <laughs> I, would, I would say that wisdom can be widespread through a population. It doesn't
0: have to be just held by a few oligarchs. Right, so it's a communal, collective wisdom. Yeah. What did your dad and what do you mean by that word, wisdom?
1: I think for my dad, and I, and I guess for me as well, that means the application of accrual of knowledge over a long period of time and a lot of experience. And the understanding and being able to look at things from a distance, from a point of view of the long-term, not just looking at the short-term and being able to see the whole picture. My father, much more than I, also talked about the wisdom of nature. And he really had a whole philosophy based on the idea that what goes on in the natural world is there are certain kind of guidelines and laws and information. And so, in a sense, consulting the wisdom of nature is also important as well. Um, And he felt like the evolution was a wise process as well. So it's, for him, it's the the term subsumed a lot.
0: What's your problem with nature? Why does
1: he talk about it more than you? I think the distinction I was making is I actually very much ascribe to that. And I think that what we are as natural human beings is what we kind of need to get back to and return to. So it's very important to me. He actually, I think, took it to another level where it was almost a spiritual concept to him. I I think that's fair to say. So he really had a sense more than I have of being able to look at natural laws and natural processes and draw wisdom from them. And I think that he was much more, with holy skepticism, I think he was much more in touch with that to a degree that I'm not just as a human being.
0: You said something about getting back to the way we used to be. And I've seen in some of your writings, too, this idea of a pre-industrial tribal wisdom. And as I read it, it's not that you want to return to Stone Age living. It's that you want to combine the wisdom of the indigenous with the market-based system we now have? And I believe you write something to the effect of, actually, I can pull up the exact quote, that um, we can be both in harmony and compete. So
1: to answer the first part of the question, yes, I refer back to, I, you know, we are basically primates. So from an evolutionary and social evolutionary standpoint, there are certain things a certain environment that we evolved in. And that involved both being able to compete and to cooperate. And we're social beings. But in that period of time, and what I'm sort of looking at, and you said it perfectly, Dan, I mean, the, the idea is to take those, those practices and integrate them into current society um, with our technology, with our level of government. So there are certain practices that were part of those traditional societies. And I'm not I have a little bit of idealism about them, but I don't have the idealism. Those pre-industrial societies, they have difficult lives. You know, there's disease, there's death, there's a whole lot, there's scarcity. So that sort of fantasy of along the lines of Rousseau of the noble savage and the idealizing that, I try not to go there. But nevertheless, those societies operated in a state of equilibrium with each other and with nature. And so on one level, there was a certain respect and a cooperation with nature and the natural world that was very much part of their lives. In addition, there was not the same kind of divisions, I think, that we find in in modern society. There's less of the mind-body dichotomy. There's much more a sense of kind of the oneness of, of each person, There also is a social system that is much more closely integrated um, and closely dense. And and the other thing is the child rearing is very different in, in those societies and how children are treated from birth and raised. As we approach a time when we're going to be in equilibrium again, in terms of population growth, we'll be at a plateau similar to what we had a long time ago. That I think that in order to adapt to that, we're going to have to benefit from those practices and that knowledge. That we're going to have to have a a different relationship with the planet, and rather than an exploitative relationship with the planet, a cooperative and interdependent relationship with the planet and with other species. I think that our social and family structure is going to necessarily change in that period of time where we're not reinforcing limitless growth and competition from the very beginning. One of the practices that harkens back to our more natural selves has to do with how much children babies and infants and children are in physical contact with another human being. And and what percentage of time? And in primates and in those early societies, an infant was in physical contact with another human being 60 to 90% of the time early in life. Um, In industrialized societies, it's much more like 10%, or it was back 30, 40 years ago. That creates a whole different I think, a whole different physiological and psychological mindset for the human organism. I think there's it, a really different in the arrangement of how they cope and their relationship to their bodies and their relationships to their own being. And that's the kind of thing that I could see as we evolve, being incorporated and being more a part of society. And that that early upbringing will be more conducive to the kind of a sense of interdependence and, and community and cooperation that we're talking about. So I there, there are lots of examples of that, but that, that's, you know, in the ballpark of what you asked about.
0: I'd love to hear more about what this would look like, what the world, what this transformation of, of the species would actually look like on a day-to-day basis. How would the lives of regular people change if we were to incorporate interdependence into a modern market-based system?
1: putting it the way you did, incorporating it into a modern market-based system, I actually think that we have to evolve into a a future non-market-based system or a very different kind of market than we're used to. Because our current market-based system is based on an idea that we can continually grow. It's based on kind of infinite, the assumption that all success is measured by, by economic growth and by dollar growth. And that just can't continue when we're at a time where we're, we're not expanding use of resources. In an economic situation where growth and success is not measured by dollars and cents and by GDP, but by enhanced well-being of human beings and enhanced well-being of the planet, is an alternative kind of model
0: for an economic system that may not be market-based in the same way. I mean, this sounds like sweeping and potentially wrenching, destabilizing change on the on the structure of societies and the way we live our lives.
1: I actually see it in a, in a slightly more optimistic point of view. Yes, I think the transition to it may be wrenching for some members of society. I, I think that that this change will not necessarily be wrenching because people will be Life will be better. There will be more sense of well-being. That comes from a more even distribution of resources. That comes from the, the sense of interdependence and, and the well-being of other people. I see it as being less of a wrenching process, as one is moving toward a more positive conclusion and a positive situation. And so, whatever we work out, and that needs to be worked out, and I, I don't have the answer for how it's worked out. That's what you know i'm just not sure that it will will be a wrenching change it'll be more of an more of an evolutionary change kind of the next
0: step in human evolution exactly and it's only wrenching depending on how much people are resisting that but your view is that people won't resist it because it will become the benefits will become self evident i
1: yes i think so
0: do you get accused occasionally of being a utopian um, only in my own mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, then you're fact-checking yourself yes. or keeping yourself in line.
1: Yeah. Um, yes, occasionally I do. And I'm sure people think that more about me than they say to me. But, you know, I confess to having somewhat of a utopian view um, of, of, the, of this possibility. I think I can easily scale it back. To more along the lines of you're thinking, if we can make it some percentage toward a utopia or to a beneficial situation, we can.
0: In, in emailing with Marissa, who, who's producing this episode, you, you, you talked a little bit about how uh, this pandemic could be an event that precipitates this transformation you're, you're describing. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'd like to think that we'll come out of this pandemic stronger. I'm not seeing it quite yet. It's not so much that I see we're going to come out of it stronger, per se.
1: Um, and there are so many negative things about it. But there are little windows of positivity. And sort of, sort of what I meant when I when I emailed that to Baressa is that there are lessons that we may be learning now that will stand us in good stead in the future. The easiest and biggest example is we went into lockdown and our carbon emissions plummeted. And our use of fossil fuels plummeted. So we may be able to use this as a learning experience of ways that we can live our lives with less energy consumption and with less frenetic lives. That end up us exploiting the planet to death. That's one possible outcome of this. Another, and again, this is without specifics, but uh, but I've recently been in contact with a guy named Muhammad Yunus, who invented the system microloans to the poor. And a few days ago, he said something very similar to this. He was talking about setting up and supporting rural economies and making the poor and the rural part of our economic system rather than peripheral to it. Um, And he he just said that this epidemic is an opportunity to make bold and sweeping changes in our economic systems. So I just see little bits of thinking along these lines among other people as well.
0: You know, when when you talk about the dip in carbon emissions, uh, two things come to mind. One, you know, I've traveled the world and seen as a journalist and seen the impact of climate change on, on endangered species, on indigenous populations in the Amazon. So I'm very worried about climate change. And I also think back to that word wrenching, along with this dip in carbon emissions, we saw a massive contraction of the economy that left people in jeopardy of being evicted from their homes, hungry, anxious about the future. So this is when I use that word wrenching. I mean, I just think about these changes that could come about, whether the pandemic does it or not, or just This transformation that you and your father envisage, it just feels to me like it's—the end result may be positive, but getting there seems bumpy. Yeah, bumpy
1: to to say the least. And and, and if you're talking about it in that sense, yes, it is in reality going to be a wrenching change. There's going to be tremendous conflict. It's not going to happen without, you know, unfortunately widespread famines there's a whole lot of really difficult things to come. So in that sense, yes, I totally agree that that is wrenching. I mean, what's interesting is that dip in carbon emissions came alongside all of those things. And in at least in countries where they could afford it, and ours was one of them, we were able to mitigate that to some extent through distribution of of money that decrease the amount of that. That's an interesting, you know, other area f- for people to be looking at in terms of over, overly simply put distribution of wealth and distribution of resources that we may be able to explore other ways of doing that than we have in the past.
0: Much more of my conversation with Dr. Jonathan Salk right after this. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You'll always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs mysteries and thrillers motivation wellness business and more audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases and next listen recommendations for every type of thriller listener the selection over on audible when it comes to true crime mystery and thriller is um, quite extensive they've got john grisham tons of stuff by stephen king david baldacci My favorite that I've checked out recently in the crime fiction genre is called Age of Vice. It's by Deep Kapoor. It came out uh, not long ago. Not only is it thrilling and uh, very, very plotty, but it's also written incredibly well. It's truly literature. Deep Kapoor is a a force of nature as a writer. Age of Vice, it takes you into the uh, underworld in New Delhi in India. I absolutely love that one. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. whole wheat, pita pockets, and more. I am constantly uh, consuming these 365 products, including the, the raw cashews, which I snack on all the time. We love the 365 sea salt and pepper. Uh, we love their sushi rice. You get the picture. Go check it out. Taste the Mediterranean now at Whole Foods Market. I was reading an article yesterday in, in The Atlantic. Um, it was written from a Pretty partisan standpoint, mm-hmm. uh, but it was nonetheless a quite compelling blow-by-blow history of how the U.S. got felled by this virus. How it exploited all of our—it it was just like made in a lab. To I, I'm not—that's not a conspiracy theory. That's just a <laughs> speech, uh, to exploit our weaknesses. And one of the one of the themes that the author. And I'll post the article in the show notes here. But one of the themes that the author, whose name I believe is Ed Young, but one of the themes that the author pointed out uh, that he didn't expand on that much, but it seemed really resonant to me, is the dominant culture, consciously or subconsciously, that we have in the United States of rugged individualism. Mm -hmm. That we are out for ourselves. And I see this at work in my own mind in many ways, and it has so many knock-on effects. I think in particular for men, but I don't have any evidence to back that up, but I've heard smarter people than me uh, uh, advance that theory. And and so I just wonder whether that's a resonant theme for you when you think about what's happening in our culture, particularly in the United States and, and in our society and polity, uh, in the wake of this virus um yes is the simple answer and you've
1: you you touched on a couple of things but in terms of the rugged individualism yeah we have a society that that's based on on that and that i can take care of everything myself and people end up like that particularly males through a whole series of developmental experiences and that I think to some extent shapes or reinforces that kind of attitude and and that that sense of, of value. I, I think that a lot of things, and I'll be interested to look at the article because a lot of terrible things went wrong, and they really overlap with holding on to the kind of values that have worked in the past and that really don't work in the present. But I think it comes into play on a societal level, it comes into play at, at an individual level. I, I think the other thing to say about it, Dan, is that that very emphasis on individualism, that emphasis on me first, that short-term thinking, short-term benefit, let's you know eat the marshmallow now kind of thing, is has played itself out in, in spades throughout all of this. And I don't know if we're going to learn the lessons of it. But the, the consequences are, are, are huge. And I, I won't say necessarily, although it's true, we could have dealt with it in another way. The question is how we're going to deal with it in the future and whether we can learn some lessons from this kind of a society.
0: And the jury's out on that. What I'm hearing from you overall is sort of a long-term optimism, mm-hmm. but short-to-mid-term could be bumpy <laughs> yes you're absolutely hearing that from me this kind of
1: optimism is based on a really long-term view of looking at tens if not originally I thought it would be hundreds of years I think it's going to have to happen more quickly but it's looking at it at a much longer view than a than a three to five to ten year window I think if you look at that window we're screwed I mean things look just totally chaotic There's conflict, there's famine, there's plague, there's everything, and there seems to be no way out. That comes, I think, from this conflict between two value systems. One set of people are looking at this, facing uncertainty, facing danger, and saying, Whoa, let's go back. Let's go back to what worked in the past. Let's go back to fossil fuels. Let's go back to individualism. Let's go back to nationalism. You know, in the ultimate sort of withdrawal from all kinds of interdependent relationships. Then, you know, we're seeing that writ large. I do believe, and this is partly on faith, but it's partly on rational belief as well, that there are a vast number of people who are looking at the same uncertainty and saying, what we have to do is we have to go forward. We have to adapt. We have to adapt new values. We have to adapt new strategies that are going to assure our survival and work out for us. And at the same time, may well not only ensure our survival but increase our level of well-being throughout the world
0: as we lurch toward potentially um this next step in human evolution and as this collective wisdom to use the word that you and your dad have used potentially takes hold what role do you see for spirituality in particular, as you know, I'm a, I'm a big uh, believer of and proponent of mindfulness and meditation, mm-hmm. and I know you've dabbled in that, but it, you know, wisdom can come in many forms. I think, you know, you're a psychiatrist. I think there's psychology has uh, an enormous amount to offer us. Spiritual practices, both secular and uh, sectarian, what role do you see for those? It's the kind of practice that
1: you do. Of meditation and the growth and transformation that comes through that, I see that as being certainly synergistic with, but also essential to that broader sweeping change. We're not going to be able to change our collective behavior without individuals being different. So I think that that level of practice is certainly important and special and necessary. Being more in touch with your basic emotions being more aware of your bodily functions being more unified with less incorporation of the kind of stress and craziness that, that we're all part of. That's going to be part of our lives in future society, whether it comes to meditation, whether it comes to child rearing, whether it comes from, from different places. In terms of a, of a more religious, sacred spirituality, I don't know. That's certainly something that is ubiquitous in human societies and human culture. Basically where it's problematic is when that spirituality becomes fixed and in some sense, fundamentalist and not able to adjust to new conditions in different situations. That kind of, I mean, looking at the broad, broad term, that kind of spirituality was coincident with the development of our, of our modern world in our modern society, by getting away from agricultural societies. I'll, I'll speak on my father's behalf and somewhat on mine, but I think he believed in a kind of spirituality that was based on nature. And so there was a kind of spirituality that he had that, as I say, was based on nature and natural laws and learning from and adapting to those principles and those processes—that certainly has a place. I don't have a clear answer on what place standard spirituality, whatever that may be, would would have. But it's a need that people haven't, so it would have to be incorporated in some sense.
0: You brought your dad up, and I was a—I'm just sort of curious. Were you alive when? The vaccine came out? Do you, do you have any memories of that time?
1: Sure. I was around, it was developed, they really had the vaccine around the time I was two or three. So uh, a whole set of memories are of getting injections and blood tests from my dad sitting on the kitchen table. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's my, you know, and as a four and five, you know, three, four, five year old, so I have some unpleasant associations with that. And, and by the way, just to clarify, he did not give it to us using us as guinea pigs. There was no sense of that at all. He had a product that worked, and he wanted us protected against polio. It was as simple as that. People oftentimes ask us, well, what, what was it like to be a lab rat at home? And it just it didn't feel that way at all. And then I have lots of memories of – so what happened was that, that they did a, this huge field trial. involving involved a million and a half, two million children in the summer of 1954. It was a double-blind trial with a placebo. And a guy named Tommy Francis, who was my dad's mentor, really, um, when he was doing early research, headed up this effort from the University of Michigan. And they tabulated the data, and it was kept a closely guarded secret. And then it was announced on April 12th, 1955. So in April 1955, we flew to Ann Arbor, Michigan. And there was a meeting a conference a big, where the results of the vaccine were announced. And when Tommy Francis said, and I was actually out of the room at this point, but when Tommy Francis said, it's safe and effective, um, there was a standing ovation. And then at the end of it, there was just bedlam. The reporters all wanting a copy of the report. And finally, the the guy who was distributing it finally just stood on the cart and just started tossing them into the crowd. Um so there was this, there was a certain amount of instant worldwide fame. He was well known beforehand in many ways. The other memory I have and these are five-year-old memories <laughs> was we got back to Pittsburgh and um there was a waiting crowd and reporters and a whole lot of you know mild hullabaloo which I really enjoyed. And then we got into the limousine and we had a motorcycle escort back to our house. Um so I was in heaven. <laughs> <laughs> um I will, I will confess another family story about me is that my mother often said, and I have no memory of this, is that I, the first thing I did is I went into the house, I picked up the telephone, called my best friend, Billy Frank, and said, guess what? I'm famous, and so is my dad. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's a great story. That's. I would have done the same thing. Uh-huh,
1: uh-huh. One point that I want to make is just coming back to the whole concept around this kind of societal transformation that I'm talking about includes two concepts that I just want to make sure are clear. One is based on this concept that we're moving from a time of accelerating growth to a time of decelerating growth, and that in order to adapt to that, different human values and different human behaviors are selected for and come to the fore. I believe that as human beings, we are born with a panoply of abilities and proclivities for different kinds of behavior and for different kinds of thought and values, how those develop and what are predominant in a society comes from the environment that you're in. So the, the whole concept is really based not on totally pie in the sky thinking about how nice it would be if we could all get along. It's based on the actualities of that. We are social creatures as much as we're independent creatures. And that in the different environment of going into limitations that will select for, that will move us toward a more cooperative nature as opposed to our more competitive and destructive nature. But I don't expect those other values, those other behaviors to be completely suppressed. I'm not talking about like a, a completely transition to another species, but we're still the same species. But what predominates will be different and can be different and can can transform society in that respect
0: the phrase that's coming to mind is the title of your father's book that you mentioned the survival of the wisest so it doesn't mean in this future society doesn't mean that it's all unicorns and rainbows correct It, it, it just means that the sort of norms may shift Away from the individualism that has predominated, at least in our corner of the world, toward a more collective view.
1: It's, it's not exactly 10 percent happier, but I'm talking about if we can change the balance to 60-40 um, from one to the other, that's what we're looking at. Or maybe 70-30, but not a complete eradication of any negative
0: human traits. Right. So it's not utopian in, the, in, the, in that sense. It's not a woo-woo concept that I think is going to exist
1: just because I wish it so or because that would be nice or because it's a nice fairy tale. It really has its roots in the sort of the reality of the human organism and human society and just how we may shift and how we really have to shift if
0: we're going to continue being a species on this planet. I'm looking at another title of a column you wrote. uh, There's a rational, this is the title, there's a rational evidence-based argument for optimism for humankind, really. (laughs) And, you know, parenthetically, it's like, yes, we're not making this up. We're not pulling this out of our fondest hopes and dreams. It's based on reason and science. And it's not necessarily going to be a perfect world and it's probably not going to be pretty getting there.
1: And I
0: guess the... Two
1: things to add to that are it's not going to be pretty getting there, and that's anticipated. If you look at the long term, the kind of period that we're in is just part of a natural developmental and evolutionary process. When I say just, we're living through it, and it's just horrendous, and there's, there are untold amounts of human suffering that are going on as we speak. So, you know, that takes it into account.
0: It's not going to be pretty getting there, but it's not pretty right now. Correct, let me just go back to individualism for a second, because I'd be, I wonder if you've seen this in treating patients uh, or in your own mind. I had a guest on a while ago, Johan Hari, He wrote a book called Lost Connections. And I went back and listened to it recently just because it, it was related to something I've been thinking about and, and writing about. And, you know, he makes the case that just as there is junk food, there are junk values. Mm. And the junk values are or have to do with this myth of the rugged individual, uh, the measure of a life uh, of the worth of a life is, you know, dollars and cents, achievements, et cetera, et cetera. And that focus on me, 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 which, by the way, you can see if you I don't know if you're on Instagram but uh, or Facebook, but um, you can see it on social media with people just sort of. Spending so much time just curating their own public image, Mm -hmm. their own personal brand, which Johan referred to as. Ego itching powder (laughs) that that this the predominance of these junk values, he argues, and and marshals a lot of evidence behind this argument is what he's a journalist and a social scientist and um, is is what is leading or, or contributing massively to this epidemic of depression that we're unhappy when we ignore our nature and our nature is to be connected to other human beings that sounds just right in, all the way from
1: they being junk values and there, like they're being junk food to yes we're in that respect we're you know at sort of this extreme point of getting farther and farther from our nature and it's it's almost the the logical playing out of a certain direction a certain premise and again in the optimistic point of view seeing it as that's kind of the last vestiges i mean it's it's just exaggerating itself hopefully out of existence but that sense of individualism that sense of me that sense of the acquisition of material wealth or fame or popularity or number of visits or likes on on, on social media you know, that's really satisfying a, a deep hunger for something. And I, this gets into the sort of the more psychiatric aspects of it. I think that deep hunger, in part, has its roots in kind of social and, and value deprivation early in life. And rather than, in some sense, having contact and social contact with a human being, getting things and that's reinforced really, you know, throughout development. And I think the the outcome of that is people being hungry, eating as much as they can and still not being satisfied.
0: Yeah. The Buddhists call that hungry ghosts. Yeah. With the, yeah. They, they, they represent these these um, deities, but they're not the kind of deities you one would aspire to be, um, that have um, huge mouths and tiny necks. <laughs> Or no, a no, huge. What is it? I can't remember. They, anyway, they're they, they're eating all the time and never sated. Yeah. So are you saying that? So I have a five year old. I I ought to be, have more time bouncing him on my lap, physically connected to him, playing ball with him, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, than giving him the superhero gifts that he so uh, voraciously craves.
1: You know, I'm not exactly saying that, Dan. The fantasy life of a five-year-old is gratified and enhanced by a certain amount of security gifts. It's when there's an imbalance. It's when one is taking the place of the other that's a problem. And the kid itches, doesn't know where to scratch, gets a superhero gift, has a temporary relief, and the the itch or the discomfort come back, and then you're in a cycle of doing that. So it's not that kids shouldn't have wishes gratified and, and get things. But what's important is that they not be correcting for a deficit or avoiding some kind of difficult interaction and protecting them from ever feeling disappointed or deprived and being emotionally connected with them in an intimate and a reflective way, that, that they need that. And That's really important, really from the first days of life.
0: And do you think many parents are... Failing to provide that kind of deep emotional sustenance in favor of superficial sort of capitalistic rewards? I guess the
1: answer is yes. I think that there that that's really sort of endemic to our society, that it's very widespread. Again, it's not an either-or thing. There's a spectrum. So there are families where things have gotten really out of control in that respect. And then there are families where that solid sense of values, that solid sense of connection
0: remains the basis of what's important. What else is on your mind as you survey the current landscape in the middle of this pandemic from the point of view of a psychiatrist who's treated both children and adults? In, in terms of the epidemic, there's both kind of good and bad aspects to it.
1: The The bad effects are easier to list. But I think that For many families, the degree of stress, the degree of trauma, the degree of disruption, the degree of uncertainty is certainly going to affect these kids and in kind of in in unknown ways. Now, at the same time within those families, I do think that there has been in some, in, in many families, at least temporarily, a salutary benefit of having, being at home, being with kids, living in a way that's much more like our distant past. And I think that there have been lots of positive experiences that have happened. You know, I'm much more familiar with our privileged social class, so I don't really know how, how that's played out in a family that's living a marginal existence. But nevertheless, there, there has been that sort of positive thing. The other thing is that for kids and adolescents, there's been a severe constriction of social interaction which is really an important part of development, of just being with other kids, sorting things out, playing, fighting, quarreling, sharing, not sharing. What the effects of that are, are going to be, I don't really know, but they're going to be effects. And I'll be interested to know how, you know, if, if this, depending on how long this lasts, what those will be. I think if it's a year or two, that will still have effects, but kids are pretty resilient. So getting back in those environments, you know, I think they're liable to do okay. If it goes on
0: longer than that, I don't know. So the resilience of children is maybe I've been self-soothing with this, but I'd heard a story about some sort of study. I don't know if it was qualitative or quantitative on the kids who lived through the bombardment of London, during World War Two. Uh-huh. And and I'm probably butchering this. So <laughs> please t- don't you know, take whatever I say with a grain of salt. But they it appears that they turned out to be fine uh-huh. because kids do bounce back so well. What's really
1: that whole issue is really interesting. I, I, I'm distantly familiar with that work. and And it's true that by many measures, kids turn out well. I think that what kids experienced were determined a lot about what what was happening. I mean, if they were there with their families and feeling somewhat security, it's there. But I think there still was a real threat and they really understood the fear. And I think that everybody turns out well in a a way, but they may have corners of anxiety or darkness. And I've seen this in a couple of people that they lived a, a very normal life. But when they're older, some of those early experiences are coming back in a more traumatic
0: way. I've known older people who've, I've watched primordial early traumas surface.
1: The other thing that's really of deep concern is that there has been a rise both in suicide, but also in terms of domestic violence. And so that's of concern, but what it it does is it is exposing something I think that was already there in terms of domestic violence. I mean, it's just that, that there's no outlet, and
0: so it's being played out more. But that's that's a big concern as well. I echo that concern. It is something. In fact, Marissa, the aforementioned Marissa, producer of this show, and I were talking about this issue the other day. Um, it's a it is a huge issue, something to be very worried about. And there are a lot of children yeah. tied up in that as yeah. well. And so this is just that is a that is a real trauma. Yeah. Are there Any questions I should have asked but failed to ask? No, I really
1: don't think so. Although I have a question for you. Sure. And I'd just be interested to know more about your thoughts about the
0: relationship between psychotherapy and and meditation. You know, you and I were talking about this a little bit before we started rolling. In the first book I wrote, I talk about having seen a psychiatrist after having had a panic attack and and that ultimately leading me to meditation he had done his job well and i was in a much better place um and was now meditating and but in recent years i've gotten back into i would say in the last two years seeing a therapist i also have an executive coach who very much approaches it like therapy both Individually with me and as a sort of couples therapist with me and the CEO of our company, mm-hmm. I've done couples therapy with my wife, which has been really sort of we didn't have an acute issue, but we we did it kind of uh, out of interest and, you know, an in, in, in investment in our relationship. And, and so I've really come to the view, and I'm just speaking for myself here, that meditation isn't enough for me on its own and that having other ways of looking at your stuff in conjunction with mindfulness and the training of other mental skills, such as compassion, can be an incredibly virtuous cycle. Mm-hmm. And the last thing I'll say is that, you know, I, I, I've i talked about this on many shows, so I won't belabor it, but I I had a 360 review, which is where people from all aspects of your life give you feedback anonymously on, on your strengths and weaknesses. And the amount of information and insight that resulted from this very painful report that I read, I don't know if several decades of meditation would have gotten me there. Uh The 360 was accompanied by a lot of very careful, thoughtful, talk-based work with my coach. Uh So all of which to say that I think meditation is incredible, but and I'm very dedicated to it, but I I think there are other modalities that can feed into uh, one's maturation that are they're really powerful as well. Yeah. No, that's that's
1: great. That's really interesting. And it does touch on something that I would like to mention or talk about, if I may. And this is separate from sort of the work that I did with my father and more work that I've done in the course of my development as a psychiatrist and in my career. But there are two aspects to it that I want to mention. One is the the whole mind-body issue. And reading your book, one of the things I was really struck with was that that sense of looking in in the body and seeing things and seeing the sensations that are going on, being very much central to that, is very much central to my work as a psychiatrist. That I think talk therapy has its place, but there's a much deeper kind of therapy that really includes deeper emotions and bodily experiences that are essential, I think, for a certain level of growth and a certain depth of change. And that emotions are really exist inside the body, not just in the mind. Um, And that that seems to be a a piece of overlap with your experience and your thinking. Um, And I can see where there's a real synergy between the two. The other thing is to looking at some of the things I talk about in terms of broad social structures is that I do think, I do ascribe to a model that kids have in growing up if they experience overwhelmingly difficult situations, um, in, in an emotional sense, that that experience is sort of sequestered in the body if they can't deal with it all. That, that there are a lot of mini traumas that happen to kids that are analogous to, but very different from the, the kind of traumas that happen, the, the big kind of traumas that happen to some kids. And that that gets kind of sequestered and put aside. And, I do think that that is a source of some of the behaviors that I've talked about today, that that you've learned to be independent, that you learn not to count on, that you learn that your, your needs are not going to be met in a particular way. And the transformation that I'm talking about, there, there's very much an individual aspect to it. And in my ideal, when I'm working with people, I want to work at that level. I want to really see that kind of organic change rather than just an exchange of of information or exchange of ideas. So I think there, there are lots of levels to that. And then if I extrapolate that, if we have a society where there's less of that kind of early trauma and less of that kind of early deprivation, then you've got a really different looking society that that kind of experience is going to feed a more cooperative society. And similarly, society has to be set up so that it reinforces those values and those experiences as well. So flexibility in the workplace, being able to spend more time with your kids, all, all of those are important. And then I think that goes all the way up to an economic system that's based on mutual mistrust and mutual exploitation. And that all then pans out in some very destructive ways. So when I'm talking about that, that societal transformation, I'm really talking about, about that individual transformation as well. Yeah, the, the personal being political in many like profound ways. Very profound ways and extensive ways, and not just in the
0: catchphrase of that, but being that. Where I go with that is, and I'll say a bunch of words, I'll post in advance that they may not make sense. Okay. You may understand the individual words, but not the order in which I use them, Um But as I review many of the I'm writing a book right now, and as I review many of the interviews I've done, many of them on this show, I'm seeing and I don't know if I can articulate this accurately, but I'm seeing a theme come through in many of them that I'll quote uh, Brene Brown, who's a bestselling author and um, has a very popular podcast and a Netflix special, but also has done a lot of science. And she talks about. For her, the big word is vulnerability. And by vulnerability, she doesn't mean go out there and, uh, you know, in the street naked where anybody can attack you. She means having the courage to be who you actually are, Mm -hmm. to be fully yourself and honest about it. Mm -hmm. And she says the biggest if I understand her correctly, she's saying she says one of the biggest impediments to that is the armoring up we do in response to our sort of rubbing up against the uglier aspects of the world. yeah, And I hear versions of this in many of the interviews I've done that, you know, if you want to get really Buddhist about it, that we have a Buddha nature, that we are essentially good, Mm -hmm. um, but that it gets covered over by these obscurations, which the job of meditation and spiritual practice is to remove those so that we can be who we are meant to be. Does any of that land with with, with what you said? Absolutely, absolutely. And it lands
1: you know, right at the heart of it. That I, I guess I do ascribe in a sense that basically we are good or okay at birth and essentially who who we we are. And that a lot of things get pasted over it. And the kinds of, what I'm calling kind of mini traumatic experiences those emotions, those, that, those pains, that vulnerability that is then hurt or assaulted causes a certain level of armor that gets put up. That's both kind of character armor as a, someone once referred to it, but also in terms of body armor and that the process of good therapy, the job of, I think, good meditation is to Undo and unwrap that armor and get at what's underneath, which tends to be a more vulnerable human being. But I'll even accept even the Buddhist concept that we're kind of we you know we do have an essential good nature and that sense of Buddha nature, and that unwrapping that is kind of our job, whether it's meditation or whether it's therapy. In the future, as much as we can develop a society in which minimizes those early traumas. It will be a better world. People's true natures is basically good. It's it's at least neutral. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, and maybe you know I, I've gone down the rabbit hole of wondering you know what, what's who's right original sin or uh, you know the Buddhist. Uh-huh. I don't know that it matters. What I you know I don't know. I hope I'm not offending anybody, but for me, I'm not sure it matters really what the metaphysics of this are. But I do know that you can work to make yourself a happier and healthier human being. And what I'm hearing from you is that that work is not merely for yourself. It actually could contribute to an evolution of the species. Yeah,
1: well put. That's That sounds right. Um, it's, it's good work all in itself, and I would be doing it no matter what,
0: but there is a little bit of a potentially higher meaning to it. So I'd love... Uh, just... You know, because people are probably curious about your work at this point. So can can you tell us a little bit more about your book? For people who are interested in
1: the concepts that my father and I wrote a book, that it is available from booksellers, and it's called A New Reality, Human Evolution for a Sustainable Future. And that addresses my father's ideas in more depth in a very visual presentation.
0: Well, it's been a bit, bit of pleasure to chat with you. I really appreciate your time. Really glad to be here. It's been great
1: for me as well. And, and actually, it was really great to pick up your book and really enjoyed that
0: and am learning a lot from it. So I appreciate that. Big thank you to Jonathan. Really appreciate his time. And if you, by the way, if you want to way to cultivate the, the values of cooperation and interdependence, check out Joanna Hardy's meditation on the practice of generosity in the 10% Happier app. I'll put a link in the show notes. Thanks, as always, to the team who helped put the show together. Samuel Johns is our senior producer. Marissa Schneiderman is our producer. Our sound designers are Matt Boynton and Anya Sheshik of Ultraviolet Audio. Maria Wortel is our production coordinator. We get a ton of really valuable input from TPH colleagues, such as Ben Rubin, Jen Point, Nate Toby, Liz Levin. And as always, big thank you to my guys from ABC, Ryan Kessler and Josh Cohan. We'll see you all on Wednesday with a deep Dharma episode about Buddhism and relationships.
2: Terms apply. Purchases must be on card. Visit go.mx you know. The early 2000s was a breeding ground for bad reality competition series. From shows like Kid Nation, CBS's weird Lord of the Flies-style social experiment that took 40 kids to live by themselves in a ghost town, to The Swan, a horrifying concept where women spent months undergoing a physical transformation and then were made to compete in a beauty pageant. Hi.